Let's take our Bibles. We're headed over to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3 this morning for our Bible study. Philippians chapter 3. This morning's message is an unusual type of a message. You may want to have sermon notes. You'll find them in the bulletin or the ushers are going to move through the auditorium. Raise your hand. They'll give them to you. This morning we're talking about the dogs of Christmas. Okay, now that may sound odd to you, but it comes from this text. In fact, in this text, he's talking about some people who are very dangerous. So I was thinking this week, what about some of the dangerous people and what's going on, the dumb crooks that are around us? And I came up with a couple of very unusual things. There's this gal called the police up in Calgary. She says that I've got, my house has been burgled. I've, they've taken some of my equipment. They broke a window. They did all this. And the police officer, who I can't pronounce her name, showed up and was getting the report. Right about the time that she's getting the report, the gal who's claiming to be the victim, she picks up the phone, it rings, and it's her father who is French speaking, so she's speaking in French to her dad, explaining to her dad how she is scamming the police and the insurance company that she pretended to get her window broken, she took her own stuff, she hid it, she's going to make an insurance claim. Unbeknownst, this officer who is there speaks six language, including French. So this gal is arrested, hauled away for false report. Three, a trio of drug thieves, they break into a house down in Florida. They find some containers with what they thought was cocaine. They take it. They snort it. Only when they get arrested a few days later do they find out that it's three urns containing ashes of three different pets so that they have snorted the cremains. Served them right. Okay. This fellow breaks into or, or is burglaring Lowe's and trying to hold it up actually there in Florida and he's holding him up and all of a sudden the police show up real fast. So he runs across the parking lot. The police are in pursuit. He hears a bunch of people over on the other side of this fence, the fence that's located across the road. He goes across the road, jumps the fence and jumps right into the Cypress Co Cove nudist colony. Uh, <laughs> The police follow. He's easy to detect. He's the only one with clothes on, and so he gets arrested. Dumb criminals. But sometimes it's not so dumb. Sometimes the victims are foolish. The gal goes to Bang Bangkok. She talks about her experience being from New York. She knows that she, there's all kinds of scam artists out there, but she says, when I got to Bangkok, there I was. I was greeted by a tourist policeman, one who is specially assigned to take care of the tourists. Speaks English, takes her out, tells her all the sights, and he says, hey, by the way, you're here. This is your lucky week. This is the week that there's no taxes and extra taxes on jewels that you can buy. And I know a friend of mine who is selling jewels down here and they are the world's greatest jewels. You can buy something really cheap. She got a $4,000 uh, necklace, found out when she got home it was worth less than $100 and she got scammed. Here's a gal who got a husband and wife that got scammed. They had this moving company. They thought they got this reputable firm to help them move for $55 an hour to pack all their things and to help them out. And it comes to happen that when it's all said and done, though they thought they had priced it right, they get a bill that's almost $4,000. They didn't read the fine print that says every item that we shrink wrap or put shrink wrap around is going to cost you an extra $25. They shrink wrapped everything, including every single piece of silverware. They didn't read the contract. They didn't read how that worked. Here's a gal. You've heard about these. Hey, Grandma, this is your favorite grandson. She responds right away and says, Aaron, is that you? Yeah, it's me, Aaron. I've gotten myself in some trouble. I need you to wire me some money right away. I need $4,000. And Grandma, I'd really appreciate it. I'm in big trouble. And I've got, you know, they don't understand. I'm innocent, the police. You ever hear of those scams before? People being taken advantage of? 
The big scam thing that's going right now is the internet, especially the dating things over the internet. Be very, very careful. This gal in Britain, she was scammed. She doesn't know exactly how much money because she knows that it's over 20 some different payments that she made to this guy. This fellow that she met, her husband had passed away two years earlier. She was lonely. She's raising her granddaughter by herself. This fellow contacted, sent her pictures of himself. You can see the pictures that he sent. He told her about how, you know, his life never asked for anything. Several months went by. And as several months went by, he's communicating more and more. They are on the internet, talk, uh, you know, communicating this way, never Skyping, but always by typing. And he's doing this. He's telling how much he's a soulmate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, oh, hey, by the way, I've got to get back to South Africa for work, but my money's tied up, da, 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 da. Over a period of those months that you can see posted that from August to February of this year, she sent 20 different payments that totaled, the police said, over $120,000 that she sent to this guy, who, by the way, that's not his picture. He got that off of the dating service of some other guy in Canada whose picture has shown up on several other websites with ladies. In fact, there was this report that came out that scans alone that NetSafe reported are netting people $1.3 million of, from 57 different people who got scammed by these dating peoples over the internet. Be very, very cautious, very, very careful. Talk about scams, it happens in churches. Greater Ministries International came into multiple churches, some 28 to 29 churches down in the uh, southern United States. They had a ministry that they would come in and they would say to the congregation, we can take with your social security and your pension plans, we can take that money and we can quadruple that money by investing in South African mines, gold, silver different areas. We will take just one quarter of it for our expenses, you get the rest of it. Well, in fact, you give another quarter to missions and other charity works and you can keep the other, uh, the other two quarters or half of it that will increase in your savings and you'll still get more savings. In that period of time that they were doing this, I said that they went to like 28 different churches. What they did is they scammed $5.8 million from churches in a two-year period. It happens even in churches, right? That people can scam individuals. You know what's the real shame? Paul is writing in the book of Philippians. And as he is writing, he's writing about a different type of a scam. He is writing to warn the Christians of spiritual scams that take place in lots of churches. And it could happen in their church. Now remember, as he's writing these people... He's ministered there. They are 10 years old in the faith. And he's writing to them. He says, I want you to be careful. I want you to be careful. Now he starts off in chapter 3. If you look at the first few words, he says, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. This is something that, that is sad, but something that you should have joy. But you're not going to have joy if you get spiritually scammed. And then what he says to these people, he says, now I'm writing because this is really, really serious stuff. Three times he says, beware, beware, beware. Beware. This is serious. Even though you've been saved for a period of time, you are still vulnerable to it. Be really, really careful. And I want you to be careful in days ahead, not just right now. Be careful of those scam artists that come into the church. And then he talks about them. And he spends almost the entire chapter talking about these individuals and how we should detect them and respond to them. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things that I'm going to write to you. To me, to indeed, to me indeed is not grievous. Uh, we'll talk about this more on Wednesday, what he meant by that. But for you, it is safe. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, he's very, very pointed talking about these people. He calls them names. Okay? He says these, spirit, these spiritual scam artists, they're a bunch of dogs. 
Now, in Bible days, that's not something real positive. They didn't have, in Bible days, they didn't have dogs the same way we did as far as domesticated pets. These dogs typically, though they would have them for dog fights or a few things of that sort, typically the commoners didn't have them. The dogs would run in packs. They were often very dangerous to children and to other animals. They were, they were scavengers. They were the ones who would prey on the weak sheep, the weak lambs. And so shepherds in that area would in particularly have to be very, very careful of them. They, we all know dogs, no matter what size, and it's probably the smaller, the louder they can get, that they're noisy. These were, these were referring oftentimes in the Bible to people. People who ran in packs. People who were loud. People who were, were you know, they had a mean bite as well as a bark that could prey on weak people. In fact, if you go through scriptures, you'll find that oftentimes when he calls people or when God has them right down and calling people dogs, it's referring to people who could be very vulgar, people who were filthy in their reaction. In fact, he says that outside the holy city, there are the dogs. Those are the unsaved. Those individuals who will not make it into heaven. Those who aren't spiritually cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Jews had an attitude, and this is interesting, keep this in mind. The Jews called most of us, who were Gentiles, they would call us dogs. Because we were unclean. We were filthy in their sight, as they were often very, very arrogant about themselves and their walk with God. So here Paul is writing, and he's going to be referring to a bunch of Jewish people who are scamming the church, and he turns the tables and says, they really are the dogs. So he's using it as a very derogatory term. He says, beware of these dogs, and he, then he describes them with another adjectival phrase. He says, they are evil workers. That makes perfect sense. You remember in scriptures that when Paul is writing in other uh, passages. He's writing about those who come who are giving false teaching. He calls them deceitful workers. He calls them ministers of Satan. In fact, Jesus describes those individuals who are very religious, that they do all kinds of religious deeds, but they don't have faith in him. He says that you are workers of iniquity. And he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The word literally means they do their own thing. And so then he says, not only are they dogs, not only are they evil workers, but then he says they are of the concision. Now the word he uses here is a play on the word circumcision. But it's a, it's a phrase, that a word that he uses that means not the biblical idea of circumcision, but it has the idea of mutilation, cutting apart, mangling somebody. And so it has part of the, the original word that's put with other, other word, and it's coming up with this idea of basically scarring somebody, ripping somebody up, mangling up their, their flesh. And he says that's what these people are doing. These people are coming in and they're mutilating through their teaching, through their doctrine. What is he talking about? He's talking about the false teachers. The false teachers that even call themselves Christians. The false teachers that come in and who are probably, if we understand scriptures right, they're the Judaizers. They're referred to that in other epistles. That they would come in and they would say to you and me, by the way, now that you are born again or you are listening to the gospel, you need to become like us. You need to do certain rules and regulations that we find acceptable and in order to complete your salvation, okay? In order to make sure it's your, you, you complete it by having faith plus, you know, whatever it be, 
those days, it would be the circumcision of the, of the boys. It would be the feast days. It would be eating certain foods. That'll help you to complete your salvation. Or some would say, it'll help you to maintain your salvation. Because if you don't do what we tell you, you're going to lose it. Or others would say, to mature in your salvation. Now that you're born again to really grow in the Lord, you need to do these certain rules and regulations that we have set up. You won't find them in the Bible, in the New Testament, but you'll find them in the idea that we in our religious beliefs and practices, we are going to tell you that you have to do this. This is a real common problem. In fact, it keeps on showing up time and time again in the book of Acts, time and time again in the epistles, that there are these Judaizers, these people who are coming in. In modern day, we would call them legalists. They would be the individuals who would come along and would say to you and me that it takes your faith in Jesus Christ to get you to heaven, but also you need to do certain things. You must be baptized plus faith. Then you get to heaven. You have to abide by our dress standards. You have to wear certain clothes or certain hair, hairstyles. You, have, you can't drive certain vehicles or you can never wear certain colors. If you do that, you'll lose your salvation. You'll, you'll not grow in grace if you don't have a haircut just like mine. And I know you're envious already, okay? You would all love a tuft, okay? But there are people who do this. There are people who would say, in order to, be, to make sure you have to come to our church, you have to believe what we believe, you have to be part of our denomination, you got to be a Baptist, otherwise you can't get to heaven. That is false doctrine. That is absolutely false. And Paul is going to debate that. He's going to challenge that. He's going to say, hey, wait a minute. You guys don't be caught off guard by these false teachers. And then he makes a comment before he goes further. He says, just to give you the facts, he says, we are of the circumcision. Now he uses the full term that you would read elsewhere in the Bible that the Jews had as part of their Old Testament ritual, but was done away with when Jesus died on the cross. And so here he says, in the two different words, they are of the concision, we are of the cir circumcision. In verse 3, he's saying it in a positive way. What's he referring to? He's not talking about the physical act that would be done to the male Jewish children at, a, at a day number eight. He is talking rather about the spiritual work of the Holy Spirit that he talks about in the book of Romans, that he talks about in Colossians, how when you come to Jesus Christ in faith, the Holy Spirit cuts away from around your heart that, that sinful, that sinful desires, lust, he changes you. Doesn't take it doesn't take in, uh, away everything, but he takes away the penalty of sin. He, he removes a lot of the scarring of the sin. That's why scripture says, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The Holy Spirit is doing a spiritual work and cutting away a lot of that old. But for sure, when you come to faith in Christ, he cuts away the damnation that we have. For there is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. He cuts that away. That's what he's saying. We're of the circumcision. Then he goes of a step further and he's going to talk about now in the book of Galatians, he talks about when that happens, we become the real children of faith, the real children of Abraham, spiritual children that are going to inherit those kingdom, the promise. And he goes a step further now. Look at the rest of verse three. He says, how do you know if you're a part of this group? How do you know that you are really of that group of believers? Because there's a lot of people, me, a lot of different preachers this morning that are going to say, you have to believe what we believe in order to go to heaven. Well, which one of us is right? Well, the Word of God, Paul says, I'm going to explain which one is right. 
And he gives criteria or he gives results of those who are really of the true spiritual circumcision that the Spirit of God is working in their hearts, has changed them, and he gives three different qualifications. He says that those who are really of this true spiritually saved group have these characteristics. They worship God. Look what he says in the verse. He says, we are the concision, or the circumcision which worship God in the spirit. The wording has the idea regularly. On a regular basis, we are involved with worship. And we know that Jesus said in John 4, there's coming a day when they will worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, in sincerity. What he means by this is, he says, we worship. We don't just gather because it's ritual. It's, it's supposed to be done for, you know, whatever, you know, whatever idea is. Okay, I got to do it. Make my obligation. If I do the obligation. No, no. In spirit and in truth, we have a mindset that we worship God, not only in a public arena, but we worship God every day, 24-7, we're living in a way that we are worshiping him in spirit and in truth, in honesty and in integrity, without hypocrisy. He goes on. He says there's more to it. Because there's lots of people who could say we worship, but he says they rejoice in Jesus Christ. That's more than just being happy. It is the idea of we glory. We glory and we bask in not what we have done, but we bask in glory in what Jesus has done. We are rejoicing, not that we have a beautiful building, not that we can say the Ten Commandments, not that we know how to memorize the Old Testament books of the Bible. We, we have a catechism or we have whatever things. We don't glory in that. Not that we glory in what we have done, who we are. Not that we glory that we've raised kids or, or we're growing up as kids in a home and we take our Bible to church. We don't glory in that. He says, rather, we glory in what Christ has done. Isn't this what he meant? Instead, when he says, God forbid that I should glory in, in anything save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me. I don't rejoice, Paul says. I don't boast about what I do to get into heaven. It's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. Let me see if I can explain a little bit further by his third characteristic or description. He says, not only do they worship God, who are really born again, not only do they rejoice in Jesus Christ, but they have absolutely no confidence in what they have done. No confidence, no boasting in their spiritual deeds. No boasting in the flesh. You see what it is? It's like that Pharisee and the publican that Jesus told about. The Pharisee and publican are in their worship center, the temple of that day. The Pharisee stands up front and he's saying, you know, God, I am so thankful I am not like that person over there, that tax collector, that traitor to our Jewish faith who is collecting taxes for the Romans. That's the publican. He says, I'm so glad that I keep all your commandments, that I am, a, I am a real holy person and I teach people and I am by modern day terms, he would be your preacher, he would be the priest, he'd be the clergy and he's very boastful about his position in life. Over here is that publican. He's standing there and the publican has got his head bowed. He knows, he knows he doesn't deserve to be heard. He knows he's a sinner. He accepts the idea that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, including himself. Just like the Bible says. And what does he do? It says he beats his breast. A sign, a token of, in that culture, of real repentance. And he says, God have mercy upon me. I am a sinner. I do not deserve to stand in your presence. And Jesus afterwards says, which one is more righteous in the sight of God? The proud, boastful man or the humble one? It's the humble one. 
That's his whole point. His whole point is a lot of people are churchgoers who boast in the flesh. And there are people who are coming in and encouraging that. So Paul writes to these people and he says, yo, I'm going to write to you about the message of Christianity. A message that you should defend. A message that he says, I want you to hear about. And I struggle with this. i got to be real frank with you. I struggle with preaching this text because the majority of you sitting here, you've been saved for longer than 10 years. You're mature in the faith. You know your Bible. Some of you, you could do a better job standing up here and preaching than I can do. And yet he writes to a church like that and he talks about their salvation. And I'm thinking, i got to give you something more. You already know about being born again. But if it's in the word of God and talked about, it's important for us to reflect on our salvation once again. It's important for us to get real rejoicing by remembering what Christ has done. And so he writes to them once again, and his point is going to be twofold, very simple. His first point is this. Christianity is all about faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it is. The simple message of the Christmas story is faith in Christ. Now, let me see if I can expand upon it. Christianity is about faith in Jesus Christ, nothing more, nothing less. This is Christianity. Now, he goes on, and watch what he does in the next verses. He's just said, beware of those people who can boast. They can say, look, I'm a preacher. Look at all the good things I have done. Look at all the Bible I know. He says, beware of them. And as he's going to talk about being aware of them, what he does is he points out that he himself has been filled with all kinds of good works. He's going to go back into his history, and Paul's going to give us a little insight into who he was. And he's going to make a comment. He say, he's going to say, hey, listen, Talking about good works, these guys who come in and say, oh, you, want it, you, know, you should be as good of a person as I am. He says, hey, I am as good as they get. That's what I could have said. I could have stood up and said those same things. And he's going to give us the list of things he could brag about. He's going to say that, hey, the things that I could talk about, that I used to do, that I used to count on, that I used to bank on, that I put my confidence in, those people that are coming and trying to talk to you. He said, they would admire what I did. I did better than most of them. I lived a more moral life. He's going to talk about how I did legitimately did have all these requirements that these false teachers are going to put out. And he's going to say it's very, very clear. And he gives us the list. Look where it is. He says, though I might have confidence in my flesh, though I could boast about that, or I could say, hey, God, here's all my good works, and I have plenty of good works. He says, if any man, other man think that he has good works that he could show before God, I have more. And he's going to talk factually. You know his story. He's going to say, hey, I was following the law from the very beginning. My parents, they had me in church from the very beginning. I was circumcised, I was in that temple from day number eight. And I was trained in the law. He goes on, he says, that I was of the stock of Israel. I was of the chosen people. And they are. They are called the chosen people. He says, not only was I an Israelite, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of, from the heritage that was one of the two favorite sons of Jacob out of the twelve. And I was that one that, that first gave Israel their king. In fact, I'm named after the first king of Israel, Saul. 
He goes on, he talks about, he says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law, I'm a Pharisee. Understand in those days, that was the hoi polloi of the society. If you were Jewish, man or days, you would look and say, if anybody's going to make it to heaven by good works, it's the Pharisee. Because they're filled with good works. They are the upper echelon. They would be in some of the denominations, they would be the chief preachers. They would be the popes, the, you know, the, the bishops, the, the uh, leaders of the church. And he says, I was that. I was that. And we know he was. Because we know in the book of Acts, he held the coats of those who persecuted and killed Stephen. The person who holds the coats. And the execution is the person at that culture who was absolutely in charge. He goes a little bit further. And he says, yeah, as he goes on, he says, touching the law, I was total, I was righteous. I'm sorry, I'm in verse 6. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. I was against the enemies of our faith. I, uh, he says, touching righteousness, man, I did everything that was required. I made sure that I never plucked a gray hair. You do understand what I mean by that. That on the Sabbath day, if you plucked a gray hair off your head, beard, wherever, you were doing cosmetic work. That was a violation of, of work. You couldn't do that on the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath day, you couldn't apply any medications at all to somebody in your house, if even if they had a broken bone that needed to be set. If you would do that, you were practicing medicine on the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to work. You couldn't move furniture across the floor uh, except for just a certain amount of space. If you did and you, and you put into the ground any kind of a furrow in that dirt ground, you were plowing. So they had all these rules, all these regulations about what you could do and couldn't do on the Sabbath day. He said, I kept them all. Most people don't even know what they were because they couldn't keep up with all the new rules that were being added. And Paul said, I knew I was a Pharisee. I was writing some of them. I did everything. I opposed those who were against us. I was blameless. Nobody in my Jewish society could look and say, Paul has ripped us off. Paul is ungodly. Paul is cursing. Paul is saying here, that I have so much I could boast about, but I'm not. I'm telling you, I could boast, but I don't have confidence in my flesh. I don't look back at my deeds and my good works and say, I deserved heaven. I gave that up. I quit that. In fact, he goes on, and he's going to make a, make a statement here. He's going to say, I am never, ever, ever going to do that. He not only tells us that he, his life was filled with good works, but he's going to go on, he say, says and in the next verse, my good works were good for nothing. Notice how he makes this comment. We're going to rephrase it this way. Paul is saying, I was moral enough to stay out of trouble, but not moral enough to get into heaven. And isn't that the problem for many people today? Many people who are going to church, many preachers who are suggesting, you have to keep our rules or do our, our church thing in order to get to heaven. No, Paul says that's not true. That's confidence in the flesh. What I found out is this, Paul said, for all my good works, watch what he, how he says it. In this passage, and he says it twice in verse 7. What things were gained to me, those I counted what? I count for loss. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss. He's going to emphasize it again. Now, the words that he's using, he's saying all the things, they were gains for me, all of it. My, my church attendance, my memorized prayers, my treatment of this person or th that person, my keeping of all the rules and the rituals. He said that, I thought they were gains. I count them as one big, one big. And he says, I looked at it, I assessed it like an accountant would. I took, I took this, this stock of everything and I looked at it at one point in my life and it has continued ever since. He says, I find it all as one big loss. 
It didn't help me one bit to get into heaven. Didn't get me one bit closer to heaven for all the good that I have done. And I could tell you about all kinds of good things, but I'm just, I'm just saying quickly, he says, I've done a lot of good, but it really didn't gain me anything spiritually with my relationship to Jesus Christ. My church membership, my baptism, my teaching Sunday school, my giving in the offering, it really didn't get me one bit closer. They were good things. They were moral things. But they weren't enough to get me to heaven. He said, I count them but loss. In fact, he says, not only do I look at them as one big loss, I kind of look at them like they're a pile of dung. Now, there's two different possibilities. Human excrement, or the idea is it is garbage that you would bury in the dump. He says, that's how good. Now, doesn't that remind you of a passage in the Old Testament where he says, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags? When we dare say, standing before God, one day, and if God were to say, why shall I let you into heaven? If we were to dare say, oh God, look at all the good that I've done. Look at all the good things that I've done. You know, oh God, here's what the good things that I have done. I pastored a church. I've been baptized. I've baptized people. I preached your word. I, I've led other peoples to, to understanding their Bible. It's all, look at, look at, look how good I am. It stinks to high heaven that I would dare stand before a holy God and boast upon what I have done and say, I deserve to get into your home because I'm such a good person. Paul says, no, we don't, we don't accept that. He says, I came to a point in my life where I realized it wasn't me. It wasn't the good that I have done that's going to get me into heaven. It's the good son of God and him alone. It's the good work that Jesus Christ did by dying on the cross when he died and gave his life and called out, it is finished or paid in full. I realized that he died for my sinfulness, including my pride, including my boastfulness, including the little sins that I would often cover up, the little sins that are there in the Ten Commandments even described, using the Lord's name in vain. Not obeying parents. In my heart, coveting somebody else. In my heart, lusting somebody. In my heart, thinking evil about somebody. In my heart, not worshiping the way I ought to worship. Not putting God first. That we often cover up with our church deeds, like Paul did. He said, I came to a point where I realized it's not about me. It's all about Christ. I can only get into heaven through the work of Jesus Christ and I count everything but dung. Why did he do that? Watch what he says in this text. Paul came to realize, according to verse 9, where he says, and he says, I counted all those things as loss. And he says in the middle of verse 8, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all these things and do count them but dung, so that I may win Christ, be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Here's what he's saying. He knew righteousness. That is the goodness, the, the sinlessness, the purity that we needed to get into heaven was found in God alone. It's not found in man. It's not found in church. It's not found in a preacher. It's not found in some, some in act that we do. It's found in God alone. It comes to us through Jesus Christ alone. 
It doesn't come through me. It doesn't come through our, our church body. It doesn't come through a denomination. It doesn't come through the good works that we do as, as kids or as parents or as spouses. It comes through Jesus Christ. What he did. And it comes to us. We obtain it by faith in what Christ has done. Putting our total confidence, not in our own deeds, but in what Jesus has done, where he yells out, it is finished, it is complete, that I paid the price, and I realized at age 16 that it wasn't me, it wasn't my family, it wasn't my denomination that I went to. It was Jesus Christ who was born as a babe, coming from heaven so as to die upon that cross. Born to die for my sin. That his work and his work alone is what's going to get me into heaven. And I need to put faith in him. Trust in his work, not in what I do, not in what I can add to it, not in what I can to do to keep that. It's all about the work of Jesus Christ. It is resting and trusting totally in him 100%. It's not resting or trusting in anything I do. And that's what he means by the knowledge of, the Christ, of Jesus Christ. Getting to know him. Getting to be intimate with him. Getting to, to be found in him. That is that I now, when God looks at me, if God were to say, why should I let you enter heaven? I would stand there with humility like you would, say not a word, but look to Jesus Christ and let Jesus Christ do all the speaking, all the pleading. Let Jesus Christ say, Father, they can come into, he into heaven because of what I have done for them and they accepted what I did. That's the idea of no confidence, not belonging, not, not, not hoping in anything that we have done. But that's not what's being taught. You know, there's a lot of distortions that go with Christmas. There's the distortions that we joke about because they're not huge and major. But there's the distortion of the Christmas story that's so simple that so many people commonly accept about the wise men coming to the manger. We don't know if there was three wise men. Bible never says that. We don't know where and what house they went to, but we know they didn't go to the manger. They came months later according to scriptures. There's this story, in fact, I remember years ago that I got somebody very, very upset when I talked about, you know, just the, and I left in, in talking and rehearsing Christmas stuff. I get people tell me all the time what messages I should preach. And so they'll tell me I should preach on this character. Somebody suggested I preach on the character of the innkeeper and how the innkeeper responded. It would be a wonderful message. I told him I would never do that. I never preach a message on the innkeeper. There's a reason why. He's not found in the Bible. It never says there was an innkeeper. But it's become so traditional that people jump on it to the point that that person who told me that got so mad that they left our church because I wouldn't preach about the innkeeper. So we have that happening. But here, you know, that one I can live with. But here's the one that are, that are really sad. People and preachers standing up and saying this. This Christmas... We see Jesus born in a manger. We all go, yes, yes, yes. We see that Jesus came to show love. Yes, 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 he did. So we should, to get to heaven, we should love just the way Jesus loved. No, 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 no. Jesus did a lot more. A lot more than just coming to show us how to treat one another. Yes, he did. But that's not how we're going to get to heaven. Jesus came to die in my place because otherwise I couldn't get into heaven. So we need to talk about the real message of Christmas and make it very clear. It's not what we do, it's what he's done. And so he writes these people, he warns these people, he says, you got to fight for this. 
You don't let these dogs, you don't let these evil workers, you don't let the workers of iniquity come in and distort the teaching that Jesus is the only hope to heaven. Don't let anybody dissuade you. He is the truth, the life. There's no other way but Jesus Christ. No man comes unto the Father but by him. It's not of works which we have done, but according to his mercy that we are saved. His grace, his goodness, his forgiveness. What do we have to do? Repent. Repent of our sin and ask him to apply the, the forgiveness that he purchased to our account. Oh, we need it desperately, don't we? We need things. Desperate application. When I was doing our checkbook and trying to balance it the other day, I had a desperate moment of application. Somebody in our family wrote a check and didn't record it in the checkbook. I don't care what she says. It was in my handwriting. I sent the bill off. I wrote it, but I know I didn't do it. She had to have done it. Okay. And so when we were, we were bouncing the checkbook, She's, I said, hey, we're, uh, we're, we're going to bounce checks this week. And she smiled and said, did you forget to write something in the checkbook again? <laughs> Are you the Holy Spirit? <laughs> so when we, we narrowed it down that she made the mistake. No, she didn't. It was my mistake. I don't know what it was. Um, Deb, we need to five, find $500 real quick. Otherwise, you're going to bounce a whole bunch of checks that you so what do we have to do? You make a transfer, yes? I go and I beg my son, give me money so I can put it in my account and cover this. Hey, listen, you and I are beggars and we have bounced the books spiritually. And we, don't have, we don't have any place, anywhere to pay for the indebtedness of sin that we have with God. Somebody's got to transfer something into our account. You're not, a church can't do it. A preacher can't do it. A saint can't do it. Mary can't do it. Joseph can't do it. I can't do it. It's got to come through Jesus Christ. He's the only one that has the account that paid it in full. I need you, Jesus, to cover my sin. Would you transfer your grace and your forgiveness to my account? I know I blew it. I know I'm a sinner. And Paul says, that's what I did. I came to a place, and I still am at that place, where I admit that I have no confidence in the flesh. Christianity is about faith in Christ. No more, no less. But he goes on. He's writing to a church filled with believers who are hearing some of this other garbage. And he says, not only is it about faith in Christ, but it's about following Christ. Watch what he does. He says, since Christ has done this for you, he says, then what do you want to do? Well, pick up with verse 10. He says, I've counted all this, no confidence in the flesh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. What's he doing? Paul in this place is going to talk about what Christ has done for him. There's a story that I heard, true or false, I can't verify, that a fellow was sharing. He said that he had a friend of his who was in the Navy SEALs. They went into an area where there were some Americans being held hostage. And so they did one of those clandestine operations. They went in. They broke in. They got through the, the people who were guarding them. They came into the room where these people were. And there they were, this half dozen, dozen people who were there for several months. They looked horrible. 
They were all curled up because they had heard some of the shooting and things that were going on just minutes before. And they were curled up. And the Americans said, we're Americans, follow us. Not a single person moved. They were terrified. They seeing these people in the camouflage, they see them with, with darkened out faces. They don't know if it's a ploy. They don't know if it's the, the captives trying to pull a trick on them. Nobody moves. We got to go. We got to go. Time is running out. Follow us. Follow us. You're Americans, right? We can tell. Come, follow us. Nobody, nobody moves. One of the soldiers then took off what he could, some of his gear, and he went and sat by those people, curled up in the same little ball that they were, and sat right next to him. And as he sat there a few minutes later, he got closer and closer to him. And then he, he was just like this talking. And as he sat there, his voice got low. And he started talking, not in order form, not in a rushed voice. Are you okay? Something we can do, we want to help. And after a couple minutes went by, minutes that the others were saying were life-threatening, he got up. Even after he had hugged one of those people, he got up and he said, would you follow me? One got up. Then another got up. Then another got up and they followed him. Why? He became like them. Jesus Christ became like us, did he not? And he went through the pain, the agony, the human experiences, and now he says, follow me. Follow me. And Paul says, I want to do that. In fact, here's my goal. Since Christ has done so much for me, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to make sure I know him. This is much more than knowing a name. This is much more than knowing who the name of the president is. This is knowing him personally. He says, I want to really be intimate with him. I want the power of his resurrection. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the bondage of sin that was broken by the resurrection of Christ. That same power that breaks the bondage of sin in your life. So that you're not controlled by habits of anger, habits of greed, habits of addictions, habits of whatever. I want to know that same power that overcame sin in my own life. I want to have a share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, you may, you may have a problem with this. You in, in saying, oh, well, does he want us to all you know, suffer and lay on a bed of nails? No, 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 that's not what he's saying. What he is saying, though, is reminding us that Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. That it's going to be a life that some people will not understand. There might be some people who will give you a hard time. And you have to have a willingness to say, I am willing for Jesus Christ to suffer some ridicule, some, some accusations. Do you remember this picture shown to the Congress? It was a Sunday night, so some of you don't, have never seen it. Those of you who are here in typically on Sunday nights, do you remember a missionary showing this picture? It was when we had missionary uh, Troy Manning with us. He showed us a picture and he said, I don't have time to tell you the story. But it has to do with these two pastors in this picture. They are, the, they are seeing the Bible in their language for the very first time that they helped translate in the thrill. Now the fellow on the left... And I don't, can't say his name. You can see it read. I'm just going to call him Mog. Pastor Mog on the left has a really interesting story. He was there when they had a lot of problems in Chad, when they had a, a lot of the uprisings back in the 70s. In fact, a new president came in, and he and that new president both worked with missions, BMM at the time. They worked with those missionaries, and the president was a Bible teacher in churches. He became a politician. He became the president of the country. Within weeks after becoming president, he had an executive order. Everybody needs to go back to the old tribal ways. Nobody can read Bibles. 
No more churches. You have to get rid of them. They started confiscating what Bibles they had in the more, in the, in the uh, not in their own language, obviously it wasn't there yet, but in the common business tongue. They started closing down churches. Well, this Pastor Mog and some others, they got arrested. They were put in jail and, uh, you know, they tried to plead their case with the president who was even more angry because now he had become a heretic. He had denied the faith and he was now going back to animism and uh, worship of other, other gods and he gave an order that these men were to be killed. Pastor Mog was with the 11 others and they were told that tomorrow they will die. They will be buried. Their death was buried in the sand. And so he's there, they're praying, they're doing the Philippians 16, or Acts 16 in Philippi. They're praying, they're singing. Well, one of the guards knew Pastor Mog. Pastor Mog's church had helped his family out. And so he had an affinity towards him. And so he wanted to help. And so he came to him late, late that night and said, you're being released. He opened the door and let Pastor Mog out. Pastor Mog thought something had come down from higher ups. And so this is a legitimate release. What about my friends? They'll be taken care of. Pastor Ma goes to his home. Only the next day does he hear that that young man had on his own authority released him from prison. And those others were still going to die. Pastor Mog was so broken that he started heading back to the jail. Before he got there, he received word that all 11 of them were buried alive and executed. He went to the people at the jail and said, I'm Pastor Mog. I'm supposed to be with that group. That's for me as well. And I do not, I have not denied my faith. That would have gotten him out of jail. He said, I have not denied my faith. I want to, I want to be with my fellow pastors. The uh, guy in charge knew that the young man that he had liked had let him out. And so the guy in charge said, no, go get out of here. Just leave. And refused to let Pastor Mog suffer in that fellowship with these others. But that's that attitude. Pastor Mog had an attitude of suffering for the cause of Christ the way that his friends had suffered. And he was willing to do that. And that's what Paul says, I'm willing. I'm willing to be made conformable to the image of Christ. I am willing to do whatever to deny myself, to die to myself. This is my goal in my life. And I want to do this so I can get, and it's the only time this word is found in the Bible. In your English, it says resurrection of the dead. There's another word added to it, the out-resurrection, the taking away from all those others who are dead, the snatching away out of the graveyard. What might he want to attain to that involves a snatching away out of the graveyard? The rapture, where there's going to be a reward. And what do we hear afterwards? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. He says, I want to live in such a way that when I am taken out in that quick resurrection, that, ra that from where all the other dead are, that I'm caught up into heaven, that I will be commended by my Lord Jesus Christ. So what's he say? He says, this is my goal. I want to follow Christ. I want to do more than just be saved. I want much more than just being born again. And he goes on and he shares a game plan. Those were his goals. Here's his game plan. Very simply, watch the next verse. That I might know him, the power, the fellowship, be made conformable, if by any means I might attain, not as though I have already attained or have already been perfected. He says, there's in my life, to get this way, I have to have a form of dissatisfaction. In other words, I have learned to become content in whatsoever state I am. 
That is in the physical provisions. But spiritually, I have got to come to a point where I realize that there is still more. That I am not satisfied. That I have not been perfected. Or am not perfect at this point. That I still have areas to grow in. That I am dissatisfied with what I have produced in my life. And I want to produce more. That I want to have more of what God has provided for me. That I am saying it's not enough. I'm not ready to retire. I'm not ready to give up. That God there's more in this life for me. I want to grow more like Christ. I want to be a better Christian. I want to serve him more than what I've done in the past. To get to where Paul wants to follow Christ, you need to have dissatisfaction. That it says there's more. Number two, there needs to be devotion. Devotion that says, I keep following after. I'm like a hunter after the prey. I am going to follow so that that which I have been tackled for, grabbed and brought down by Jesus Christ, I may grab and bring into my own life that I may become more like him. So this one thing I do, he says in verse 13. He says, I haven't, I, I've not arrived, I've not apprehended, but this I want, I'm going to keep on focusing on Jesus Christ. I'm going to do it no matter what. Do you remember that hero in the Old Testament who was not controlled by his past? Okay. He's, his name's Joseph. I'm going to come to him, but before I do that, let me remind you what I've put up here first. You got Nehemiah. Who people came and said, Nehemiah, come and gather with us. Come and he says, no, no, no. I have a task. And this one thing I do, I'm building a wall. And it can't be distracted. You have Mary and Martha who are sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says to Martha, she has chosen the better thing. Fellowship with me. You have this one thing. We have that saint here, and a few years ago, D.L. Moody in, in 1871, when that great fire, he was so busy, he said, I was busy building up orphanages. I was building, building up welfare centers that were taking care of the poor. I was building up this, he says, after the fire, and those hundreds that died in the Chicago fire, I realized there is one thing, those all are good, but there's one thing most important, that is winning souls, getting people saved. And Paul writes, he says, I have that same devotion. That same devotion that says, I have a goal in my life. It's to be more Christ-like. And then he goes on and talks about direction. The direction is, I'm forgetting what's behind me. I'm putting it off. I'm not going to be controlled by my successes or my failures. I'm going to keep on moving forward. I'm going to keep on reaching forth. And I'm going to move ahead. And I'm going to keep on serving the Lord. I'm not going to go backwards. I'm not going to backslide. I'm not going to say, oh, wait a minute. I'll go to church at Christmas and the rest of the year I don't. I don't want that. I want more from Christ. I want to be closer to him. Now you've got that fellow Joseph. That fellow who in his background, he tried to do what was right. He told his family about the visions he had. His brothers got so mad, they, they beat him. They were going to kill him, but they threw him in the pit and sold him. He ends up down in Egypt. You know the story. He tries to live for the Lord in the house of, of his new master. The wife comes, she uh, enlists him, she tries to subdue, subdue him, and he responds by saying, I can't do this, this is immoral, it ends up in jail. He ends up in prison because he's done what's right. He's in prison, and some people tell him his dream, the last time he told dreams, he got sold. But he opens his mouth once again, he tells those others about their dreams, but please remember me, they forget him. Months go by, he's brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I hear that you tell dreams. By this time you'd think, he'd say, I'm never telling anybody another dream. Every time I've done it, I've got into trouble. But he says to Pharaoh what it is. He gets elevated out of the prison. And then the biggest test of his life, his brothers show up looking for food. And he has to decide, do I forgive him, do I not? Here's an individual that grew up in a dysfunctional family. 
and realize that's no excuse as a Christian. You cannot blame your parents and say, I can't serve God because of mom and dad. You choose. And Paul says, I've forgotten those things which are behind me. I don't don't look at what I did. And he did a lot. He could have felt guilty over killing Christians. He says, that can't control me. I don't feel feel my oats in the idea that I've done so much for Christ. I forget the past. It's right about today. What am I doing for Christ today? He says, what am I, how am I serving? How am I reading? How am I growing? Let me see if we can rephrase this. You're moving in some direction. You're not stagnant. You're either going forward spiritually or you're going backwards. So what are you going to do this year to go further in your faith? What goals have you set for Bible reading? What have you decided to do or what are you doing with your kids to help them to really understand the Bible more than ever before? What new tools? What have you done in your prayer life this last few months? Have you grown or has it gone backwards? And Paul says, no, if I'm going to continue to become more Christ-like, following him, I'm moving forward. I'm moving forward in my witness. I'm moving forward in my marriage. I'm moving forward in my relationship with my family. Determination. It's going to be tough. But Paul says, I press on. I give that effort. I keep on going. I'm not going to quit. I realize that somebody that wins the race doesn't win by sitting in theory. They put effort into it. Then he says, there's discipline. There's discipline in my life. Verses 15 and 16 don't make sense if you read them by themselves. But literally, when you read them, it says, if we want to be perfect, we have to be this minded by operating by the canon or the rule of Jesus Christ. What's he mean by that? It's the idea that, hey, we don't get spiritual by some quick scheme. It takes required continuous effort. We have to follow the rules of Jesus Christ. Not because we boast in those rules, but out of obedience. We look and say, Jesus, if you have done all this for me, I will gladly do what you tell me. You tell me where to follow you. You tell me what to do when it comes to baptism. You tell me what to do when it comes to worship. You tell me what to do when it comes to forgiving others. You tell me what to do when it comes to my marriage, when it comes to being a worker the way I'm supposed to. You tell me. You tell me. I'll be guided by you. I'll follow you. And better follow the rules. All time. Athlete of the century. Won two different gold medals in some of the hardest, most grilling, different tasks. Jim Thorpe. But weeks afterwards, he was stripped of the medals. Why? Unbeknownst to him, unbeknownst to some of those working with him, he had played a couple different games for a semi-professional baseball team and got like $10. Now those were the days for payment, huh? But he had taken money and therefore he was disqualified from the Olympics. He had done the task, but he didn't do it by the rules they had at that time. Right or wrong, those were the rules. You and I need to follow the rules of Jesus Christ. That's what he's writing. He's saying, brethren, follow me. Look at verse 17. He's able to stand up and say, follow me as I follow Christ. So that you too can know him and the power of his life in your life. You follow me. I started off, I told you about the scams. I told you that there's people out there scamming different individuals. Let me, let me tell you this. Listen closely. This is no scam. What Jesus offers you today is real. He offers you forgiveness of all your sins and a reservation in heaven. This is no scam. This is no ploy. Jesus' own words. Jesus' words where he talks about whosoever believeth on him shall be saved. I give unto them eternal life. 
you need to call upon him. You need to ask him to be your savior. You need to come to a point where you realize it's not you, it's him. Repent of your sin, ask him. And he writes this to a group who is sitting in church. Why? Surely everybody who goes to church already knows Jesus. Well, one of the disciples wasn't even a believer, was he? One of the twelve. No scam. He is offering you eternal life. Now, Jesus isn't scamming you, but let me ask you a real pointed question as a close. Are you scamming Jesus this morning? I'll repeat that. Are you a scam artist with Jesus this morning? Are you here this morning saying, here's the deal, Jesus. I'll serve you. I love you. I'm doing this and that for you. My whole life is for yours. And it's not true. I mean, it's true right now because you're here. But when you walk away, are you really living for Christ? Are you really so sold out for Christ that you witness? Are you so sold out for Christ that you say, I'll follow you anywhere? Are you really, really dedicated to him? Or are you giving him one of those love notes so you can just get, get, get? Christmas is not supposed to be about scamming. And Jesus is not scamming you and we come to the reality of Christmas. He humbly came to this earth so you would humble yourself by faith in him. Christmas is about you and I saying, we will follow such a savior. We will do what he wants. We will give him what he desires. My life. He's going to give me eternal life that will last forever and ever. I surely can give him what few years I have. And then get to know him better.